Try to do things like that. Are there implements involved? Use those implements. Are there different angles involved? Use those angles. And so we've all seen it. The track guy that runs a, uh, you know, a 10-5 and track goes up for football, and they're not pulling away from anybody because they tighten up when they're getting chased. So they, they don't run well with an implement. So hopefully your training, if you're going to train speed, involves those characteristics because that's what's going to happen during the game. You know, so they're they're have to look around for a defender. They're afraid of so all those things are present during sport. I think they should be in some ways present during your your speed or agility training as well. That was Coach Michael Zwiefel. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, and it's great to have you here. So Michael has been on the show a bunch of times. Have absolutely loved learning from him on the level of movement dynamics, game speed, agility training and a whole lot more. And as he's been on the show in the past, he has done so as a physical preparation coach in the private sector. Since then, and in the past year, Michael has moved on to the pure sports sports coaching side of things. So he's sold his Building Better Athletes business, and he is now the special teams coordinator, defensive backs coach, and co-defensive coordinator for the Wisconsin lacrosse football team. Michael is also a member of the movement education group Emergence. And for the show today, Michael will be talking about that transition. He'll be talking about what led him out of his private sector sports performance business and into the university coaching space, sport coaching space. He'll be talking about the sport movement, the ecological dynamics and game speed principles that he took with him into his current football coaching job. And he'll also be talking about his vision for what the physical preparation program could look like, a more integrated physical preparation program within his specialized or college-level athlete population. You might not totally agree with everything Michael says there, but you cannot deny that Michael is a passionate and futuristic and forward-thinking coach, and he stretches your brain. He stretches your brain no matter what side of things you're on, the strength side, the sports side. How Michael views that total equation of what puts points on the scoreboard and gets athletes better, and the just solid and straight-up differences between the weight room and the chaos of sport are so worth listening to. It's always fun to sit down and talk with Michael for the show. Before we get started, though, I wanted to highlight our show's sponsors. The first is Lost Empire Herbs, and if you want to get a free bag of one of their flagship products, Pine Pollen, you can do that by heading to Just Fly Pine Pollen dot com. Pine pollen is one of the main ingredients in the Phoenix formula, one of my absolute favorites from Lost Empire Herbs. If you want to try the power of nature, getting the power of nature involved in your supplementation program, I can't recommend Lost Empire Herbs enough. I've been such a fan of them ever since I had their CEO, Logan Christopher, on the show talking about mental training, strongman training, and Lost Empire Herbs carries a 365-day money-back guarantee on their products. You really can't go wrong. So if you want to check out the Pine Pollen, head to JustFlyPinePollen.com. If you want to get 15% off any of your other orders with Lost Empire Herbs, head to LostEmpireHerbs.com slash JustFly. You can see some of my other favorite products from them, Shiliajit, Phoenix Formula, and others. And I've really enjoyed having them as a sponsor of this show. Second, we have simplyfaster.com. If you have sports technology needs, Simply Faster is your place to go. They have curated in their store a best of in sports technology, timing, and training equipment. So whether you need force plates, a timing system, a jump mat, a bar velocity tracking system, training equipment like blood flow restriction training or the K-Box, head to their online store. You can find some amazing stuff there that will help you with your sports technology needs. 
They also have a great blog, and they've been with us since almost the beginning. They are an amazing company with awesome customer service, and I would absolutely recommend checking them out. You can find them at simplywithanifaster.com. And with that said, let's get to this episode with Coach Michael Zwiefel. So tell me a little bit, you're at Wisconsin Lacrosse now. Curious how you got there. Like, you know, you, know, you had you know, building better athletes and doing a lot of stuff in the private sector. And I know you, I always saw you working like with football players in a specific context there. Uh, what brought you to actually coaching at Wisconsin Lacrosse? Like actually putting your hand in the ring, getting that job. And then I think you're coaching differently too. Like you were a receiver and you're coaching defense or something like that. So tell me a little bit about yep. the specifics of that journey. Yeah. Like, like I said, I, you know, I really built up a, a pretty big base of, of football population over the last five or six years. Uh, you know, put a number of guys in the NFL, high level of college football from all different positions. And so I'm, I'm at mercy of my wife. My wife is a nurse practitioner. So she's the, bread, the breadwinner of the family. And so she actually uh, got a job up here in Lagrosse, and we were planning on moving up here. And over the, I actually coached football in the spring at a different school, and I started to get you know involved in a little bit more of coaching football. And there was a job opening up here, and I knew an assistant coach up here. There was kind of a late, uh, late hire, late in July, and it was just kind of a perfect timing. And so uh, I, I know the coach, the coach up here. Um, I actually played against one of the other coaches, so they kind of knew my background and they knew that I was involved uh, with a lot of. Um, players in the in the league that they play in the WIC. I, I worked with a lot of kids in that league. And so um, I was just able to kind of transition into this role, um, but mainly due to because my family is moving up here and then just had really good timing that there was a job opening for me. And so it's been an interesting transition. Like I said, played a little bit of defense back in, in high school and college, but I, I was able primarily, I do feel more comfortable on the offensive side of the ball, but I had coached a lot of defensive backs in the last number of years that gave me kind of the understanding or awareness of, of what I was getting into. So I felt fairly comfortable with obviously the scheme and tactics of a defense and also the technique of a defensive back. So it was a, it was a good fit. So I wasn't too far uh, over my head in terms of that, in terms of regards of, of playing defensive back and, and defensive stuff like that. But um, it was a little bit of a transition, that's for sure. Yeah. Now I've, I've thought about this sometimes too, like being so used to doing the strength side of things. How is it? I mean, do you still write the programming for your guys or does one of the other coaches on the team uh, deal with that? Like, tell me about like that end of it with what you're working no, on. I, I'm, I'm totally out. I, and there's talks about uh, this. We're dealing with NCAA laws now and, and regulations. So um, we're trying to work with some things that where I could potentially be involved with strength conditioning. Not to change my role or whatnot. But right now, no, during the, during the season, I was not involved with any of the strength conditioning. I work closely or the guy that uh, programs and runs our strength conditioning mm-hmm. program. I've worked closely with, and he, he knows my background. Um, but I kind of wanted to get out of that realm for a little bit and just fully go, fully immerse myself in the sport coaching. Uh, but there may be some opportunities here in the spring and then through the off season to get more involved with that. Uh, you know, I, like I said, I kind of got burned out with the strength condition. We talked earlier. I just, I just lost interest. I just wasn't something for me that I felt was really, really uh, a, a, an earth changer in terms of performance, um, especially at these higher levels. And so I miss it a little bit. And so I think one of the biggest things with getting back involved with football was. I had a lot of ideas with, with skill, skill acquisition, skill adaptation, how practice should be designed and how we should coach athletes and how independent periods should be done and how meetings should be run. And I kind of want to put my money where my mouth, mouth is and mm-hmm. see, you, you know, if what I'm talking about is actually makes a difference. And so I, I know there's a lot of things out there where coaches will, will preach certain things about performance, but they're not actually living it. And so I never want to be one of those guys where I'm, I'm preaching about Hey, our sport coaches are idiots and they should be doing this with practice. or this is how individual periods should be done and team period. How, here's how to make practice or, or teams better at skill acquisition. 
but never actually living it myself. And so I want I want to do that. And and the strength conditioning portion that I'm kind of tempted to want to really get back into it is because I would totally overthrow all our strength conditioning. I would uh, my issue with strength conditioning is that everyone's doing the same thing. So how are you? How are you separating yourself from anybody else? And then we talked like there's no difference whether you do eight sets of three or five by five or you're doing back squat or Bulgarian split squat. It's 99% the same thing. So you're not giving your team any sort of competitive advantage by doing a traditional strength conditioning program. You're just doing it whatever else is doing. And the excuse of, well, we do it better. We do it more organized. We use velocity-based training. We do use our regulation. That Those things like when you're actually in the sport, like I'm now with sports coaching, you realize those things do not make a difference. Those things are not impacting the scoreboard. And so I kind of want to, you know, get into the strength conditioning that that part just to overthrow it. Like we're not going to, we're not going to be in the weight room and we're going to, I think in order to have a competitive advantage, you can't do what everyone else is doing. Right. And it just, it blows my mind. If you want a competitive advantage in your weight room, your strength conditioning program, be that competitive advantage and you can't do what everyone else is doing. Otherwise you're just going to get the same results they are. So I'm kind of tempted to want to push that needle a little bit. And like where all of our work would basically be our, 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 like in the winter here would be our, on, a, on a, our field house. And then during the spring, all field-based work. We're doing stuff with manual resistance with, with opponents. You're doing yeah. all live activities and our strength training, quote-unquote strength training, would be just manual stuff with our partner. We'll be different isometrics. We'll be, you know, we'll have obviously sleds and whatnot. But like, try not to touch the weight room because that's what everyone else is doing. So you're going to get the same results as everybody else. And all you're doing is making sure that whoever has the better recruiting class is going to win. So you're not... You're not putting yourself in a position to have some sort of competitive advantage if you're just doing what everyone else is doing. So I'm kind of tempted to, to maybe just get that thing working to see if it will, like I said, I, I, whenever, if I think something is true, I, I want to at least, you know, like I said, have some skin in the game. And so if I'm gonna, that's my theory on, on strength conditioning. If you want to have a competitive advantage. And so I kind of want to be tempted to do that just to make to, so I have my money where my mouth is. And so I have some skin in the game to see if that is really the best way to do it. Gotcha. So. Yeah, I guess maybe the, maybe that would be the, I didn't have this question listed, but <laughs> it, so, I mean, it's interesting too, cause it sounds like, yeah, like, like just wanting to, to make the impact on the highest level you can. And now being in the sport act as an actual sport coach. Yeah. I, I'm curious as you go through that, what your, cause I feel like it was like, well, what's the ideal world? Like in terms of strength and the sport itself. And it sounds like from what you're saying, and I actually would like to expand on that. And I have thought about this too. Like, I was like, what if I was coaching high school basketball? What if I just did like isometric holds and played, you know, like, and, and mostly just did that and maybe just did a few hex deadlifts and push ups or something, you know, like, like at one, I'd be interesting to see what kind of time you could save from like the total efficiency of the whole thing. I think, I think that's really the biggest thing in my mind. It's not that it's holding people back, it's more just wasting time. It's like, what are we doing that we're kind of doing just because this is my full-time job and there isn't much interconnection. I mean, there is interconnection. You have conversations and things like that. But just by the nature of it, you know, hey, you got these guys for an hour, you know, like, and that's kind of, all right, now what are you going to do for an hour? <laughs> and I think it would be interesting. That's where I'm, I'm kind of interested. And maybe you can expand on that. And and would that be just for skill players? Like, I would imagine that some of the I mean, like, I'm not a football strength and conditioning specialist by any means. I didn't play in high school. It would have been fun. But maybe let's just say for your group, like skill players, like are you, you're saying like the perfect world, like you pretty much wouldn't have them in the weight room. They'd be doing all isometrics, all partner-based stuff. Would you, I mean, you'd have them do any traditional work or what? Take me a little bit more through that, what your Yeah, like if I had my way, they probably wouldn't be touching the weight room. I, I think obviously there's the, the benefit of, of strength conditioning program is tissue resilience. 
just to add some robustness to to take and withstand obviously the pounding and the wear and tear of a season. I I, I see it less um, from a performance standpoint, and more more so from a obviously like a tissue resiliency and robustness standpoint. And so, but we I think we all get mistaken that hey, a barbell and dumbbells is the only way you can accomplish those things. And that's obviously completely wrong. Mm-hmm. You can accomplish those adaptations. You can accomplish those results without ever stepping foot in the weight room. You don't need a barbell or a dumbbell to get um, some of the adaptations adaptations that you're seeking for. I mean, every everything you do in a sport, all those movements have a, a physical cost. And now you can do, you can obviously manipulate those, those costs by adding weight via vest or re- resistance. You can do all these types of things. You get the strength adaptations that you want, uh, you know, within sporting actions by manipulating the load in some capacity. And so, I, like you said, I, I think it's a waste of time um, in many regards to think you got to have the weight rooms the only means and methods to elicit some sort of strength or tissue adaptation when there's many ways that I think are more functional and more efficient, like you said, and I think would build better, uh, more robust athletes than just living in a weight room. And so, um, for major, our, our work, if I would had my with Medivacs, yeah, they would, our, our strength work would be involved of being on their feet, uh, working with, with or against each other. You know, the only tools that I guess I would use maybe would be like a sled, a med ball and a, and a band. So first you can have some resistance and then weighted vest where we're doing a lot of our, our, our strength work, um, or tissue work would be still in many of the similar sporting movement patterns that we're, our athletes are doing. And so I, I just think we get confused sometimes that. The only means and methods of of strength adaptation or tissue adaptation is via the weight room. And then I think coaches would be a lot better if they had to require six months of getting out of a weight room and finding ways to get those same similar adaptations without relying on a barbell that we're also comfortable with. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think that people spend way too much time under a barbell year round uh, without question. And especially with volume considerations. But I'm curious, you, know, you think about like the, the pyramid of training and just like the Bondarchuk pyramid, I reference it a fair amount on this show probably, but like at the top, you have the competitive exercises and the special developmental, all the things that are specific, but at the bottom, you have the general, like things for like basic tissue health and injury prevention, or maybe doing the opposite of some movements that you typically do a lot of. I mean, would you still be doing like, what's your thoughts on that? Like body weight circuits or anything for like just general, general strength, robustness, that's not ex- i mean you mentioned like a band or you know, medicine ball things like that just curious what your take is on if this was the perfect world like what would that bottom just general health and tissue uh, maintenance look like yeah that would be involved some various forms of isometrics uh, whether it be positional isometrics or just general um, long duration isometrics mm-hmm. i think those can all accomplish the, the, those things yeah that that would be kind of the extent of it like i said i i'm, I'm not sure i'm a huge believer in that you're gonna have like this foundation or basic base level strength or base level general movement skills in order to kind of then work towards the peak of, you know, more specific. I think that's a little, in my mind, at least my opinion, I think it's a little overblown. I, I don't think you athletes quite need this huge base of general work. I think you can still accomplish many of those same, same things via isometrics or via specific actions as well, just at different intensities, different loads. And again, you, you think about a sport like American football, like I'm not too worried about overloading a certain movement pattern because the, the sport is very, very diverse and our athletes are being exposed to about every imaginable movement pattern or, or action that you can think of. And so I'm not too worried about uh, overloading a certain movement um, with our athletes based off of, you know, trying to use more specific exercises. Um, now you have things like baseball or swimming, like you kind of, you worked with swimming, Joel, and there may, might be some concerns about that, but I think there are obviously many ways to combat that or, you know, uh, 
via that, that doesn't involve the weight room. So um, I, I just think, again, if you want a competitive advantage, in my idea, in my mind, it just seems strange to me that you're just going to continue to do what everyone else is doing. And so I think you have to think outside the box and many of those methods and, and means. And yeah, I think you can accomplish many of those things that we talk about, those adaptations and qualities that we're trying to have our athletes adapt to can, can be done without ever entering a foot in a weight room. And like you said, you can do various types of isometrics that will accomplish many of those things. And you can do that, like you said, efficiently, you know, whether post-practice, pre-practice, on a field and things like that, that are much more efficient and effective with your time. Yeah. It sounds kind of like, you know, listening to you talk, it sounds like the outside the box, almost that jumping a a level of what people are doing sounds kind of like Tony Holler and feed the cats, you know, just even, even to the point of throwing out the weight room. <laughs> and it is, I guess I feel like too, working with college or university level athletes, I'm sure they've all been well through the weight room armor building phases early on in their careers. You know, they've, I'm sure that I doubt that you get that many kids who haven't really lifted that much at all. Or I don't know, maybe, I mean, division three, I don't know. But I mean, from my experience, it would seem like most of the kids you get are already coming in with quite a bit of weight room experience. Yeah, yeah. In today's world, even with our freshmen, they have a number of years in their belt in a, in a high school weight room. So yeah, most of them have had had a pretty good, spent a pretty good amount of time in a, in a weight room. Yeah. So yeah, really interesting with that. And you know, and with the isometrics too, I do feel like those. I remember I've had conversations with people who would only train their teams with basically Jay Schrader's long duration isos and then just play. It's it's funny because. If you feel like you have to lift a weight, you'd be like, oh, you can't do that. <laughs> but you see some of the results that people get just doing that. And I always feel like you, and, and it's interesting, yeah, you mentioned swimming. And it, it's always was funny and interesting in swimming and track too. Is And I think this is different because if it's like American football, like everybody lifts. Like name me a football program that doesn't lift weights, right? I mean... And I mean, to be fair, I, I think it's interesting or the counterpoint would say, well, look about look at the changes that happened with Boyd Epley in Nebraska and things like that. Like, how would you explain that? You know, that that introduction of weightlifting and armor building and all that stuff. And, you know, I, I know with skilled players, maybe it's a different story. And maybe you could give me your take on that. Now I'm trying to remember where I'm going with yeah. this question because I just got yeah, to I mean, like, yeah. So, like I said, they were doing, obviously, I think we're going to uh, you talk about Nebraska. That era was, you know. It was pretty damn dominant even before Boyd Epley got involved. Um, but they were doing something that no one else was doing. So now you're doing something that that no one else is involved in. So you have a competitive advantage. Now that everyone's doing that same thing, I think we have to now think outside the box to take that next step. So like I stopped talking about. So you, you, Nebraska took a huge leap. Now they were obviously one of the better teams in the country at the time as well. Um, and they added this new thing that gave them some sort of competitive advantage. But now, but then what happened? Everyone started doing that. And didn't Nebraska continue yeah. to have their advantage? No. So then you have to, now everyone's doing that same thing. It's the same shit from 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And no one's taking the next step of, well, if everyone's doing this, then we're all in the equal playing field. If I have a slightly less talented roster, or I have, I don't have the recruiting class or the resources or now like NIL money, I have to be doing something to give me a competitive advantage instead of just saying, well, we do our program better and more efficiently and we're, we're, we're more detailed and we track metrics and like, no, it's still the same thing. Nebraska had a competitive advantage because no one else was doing it. But now, like, like I said, everyone else is doing, now that everyone is doing that, you, you no longer have that competitive advantage. And so you have to find other ways to advance that or push that envelope. And I just think continue to live in the weight room with a, you know, four days a week, like every program in college football is doing, you're just, you're just, just trying, all you're trying to do is stay afloat with everybody else. You're not actually giving your athletes an opportunity to maybe, maybe take that next step and have some sort of, of a way to gain 10, 15% of that competitive advantage because you're not doing what everyone else is doing. Yeah. I guess, you know, at the very least, and it's funny because to think 
this being a show that is going to be dominated mostly less by strength and conditioning, full track speed. <laughs> They're like, Michael, you're making us mad, man. No, I'm just kidding. No, because I'm, I'm totally open-minded with this stuff because I get it. And and even, it's, well, it's interesting in swimming and track because with football, it's pretty much like you said, it's par for the course that everybody lifts. And yeah. with swimming or track, it's funny because occasionally you'll get someone who just does an amazing feat, like sets a world record. And it's like, oh, they don't lift weights, you know, or something like that. And you can see that someone was able to do something really incredible, but yet they don't do the same thing that a lot of people do. So I think it would be very interesting. It's almost like with what you're saying, there almost has there has to be basically a program, a group that does something that drastically different to show that that can create the results. And that's why, and that's one of the things that I love about track or swimming is that there's you're going to get a diversity. It's an individual sport. You're going to get a diversity with all the ways that people are trained, and then you can dig into that and say, oh wow, that person didn't need that stimulus. Or maybe that person did use weights and that was a great stimulus for them. And you can really get into, and, and looking at it with an open mind too, not just thinking, oh, well, when that person lift weights, lifts weights, they're going to be amazing. Like <laughs> a lot of times it goes the other way, you know, especially with some of those like leaner folk, you know, narrow and fraternal angle type people. Anyways, so with that, so really interesting with that. And I'm trying to think about a good way to take it. I think what let's do is I want to talk about on the level of, your movement background. So these being things that movement constraints, how you approach like setting up speed, for example, in a room spaces, what were the things that you had learned before you got into this full time that really stuck with you? Some major principles that you were able to use leverage that really helped you to, especially in working with defense too, because I know you were mostly, you know, receiver, obviously you played defense, but tell me about some of the principles that you were really able to take from your time coaching speed and movement into sports school coaching. Yeah, as I transitioned, like in you know finding like we like we first talked Joe many years ago, like this ecological dynamics approach, and, and you really feel that in order to improve an athlete's movement, you know you, they have to be put and placed in in a context or environment that retains much of the informational variables that they'll see in sport, and that is typically going to be live human bodies. And so those principles when you take if I can think about representative task design. So does the task the activities that you're having your athletes do, they look, feel, act, behave like sport. Are, are you manipulating constraints? So each repetition is different, just like in sport. Like, again, whatever sport you're talking about, to say volleyball, re- returning a serve, every single serve throughout the whole season is slightly different. The velocity, the angle, the direction, who's receiving it. So every, you know, we're try- I'm constantly trying to keep those variables, rep without rep, representative task design, manipulating constraints. So my athletes are interacting with rich environments that have many of the pieces, the moving parts, that are specific towards their sporting context. And so when I think about how I design my individual periods with my athletes, I'm trying to retain all those things. So if you think about the sport of American football, uh, traditional indie individual periods, they call them indie, uh, involves like, think about think about a running back. What do they typically do? They're like going over high bags or they're running mm-hmm. through like a shoot with the arms. They're going around cones in preset, predetermined manners. There's no information that they're having to interact with. The coaches having the same distance, the same equipment day in and day out. So there's there's no progression. There's no pushing our athletes' movement skills. There's no interaction with specific information. Does not look, feel, act, or behave like sport. So when I'm designing activities that I get to be involved with, and that typically involves individual periods with my position group and individual periods with my special teams, is that I'm trying to make sure that uh, at least a, a large percentage of the information that my athletes will have to interact with on the game field on Saturday afternoons is present in my activities. If it is not, I just I'm, I don't feel like I'm, I'm 
improving their skill set. I don't feel I just feel like I'm wasting time. And so I, I want my athletes to interact with specific information that they're going to see on game days. I want them to start to become more attuned and sensitive to that information, which will allow them to make better decisions, will allow them to move more effectively and efficiently and more safely within their sport. So what would an average practice look like for you? So guys coming in, what is your session with them? Obviously, I'm sure there's not going to be bag runs and cone drills. Like, just kind of take me through a, a typical setup and what that would look like. Yeah, so it depends on the practice, but typically I'll just talk about individual periods. So you know, I typically get like 10 to 20 minutes of indie periods a day. And that's just like when you're with your position group and your position coach are working on individual skills, techniques, tactics for for an upcoming opponent or for our position. So like I said, a traditional defensive back work would typically involve lots of backpedaling. So you're backpedaling to the hash, turn around, back on back, backpedal, weave. You're going on a coach, moving my arms left or right or simulating, uh, you know, I'm pointing left or right. That's typically what a defensive back individual period will look like. So for my individual periods, it is always, we're always partnered up. That's the minimum. We're going to be partnered up and we're doing, whether it be backpedaling, whether it be whatever our other techniques might be, our bail technique, our press technique is always, always going to be with, an, with a partner that's simulating a receiver. And so that way you are you're interacting, right? You're becoming more sensitive and attuned to the specific information that the opponent is going to do. And so that's that's kind of the bare minimum. We're always going with the opponent. And on day one of our fall means, I talked to my you know defensive backs because they've gone through the ringer. They've gone through many seasons where they're probably just doing backpedaling drills, backpedal weave. They're looking at a quarterback who's again, the coach who's the quarterback who's just moving their arms left and right. That's kind of what they've done. They, they're doing cone drills. They're doing ladder drills. That's kind of what receivers and D-backs do their whole career, right? So I, I told them the first day of camp, I'm, we're not doing that. We're, we're always going to be doing a activities or drills with a partner because that's what you guys have to do. You you guys are defending a human being who is trying to manipulate you, who is going to manipulate their speed. They're going to try to stem you. They're going to try to juke you out, if you could say. And so we're always going to go against a, a, another a teammate because that's what playing defensive back is about. You are reading a, a receiver. That is your where your eyes need to be. So you might as well practice every single repetition that we can against an opponent. Why would you do something on air when uh, in game day you have to do it against a, a live, living, breathing receiver who is trying to manipulate you? And so our individual periods, again, it's hard to get super in-depth, but we'll, the bare minimum is we're, we're never going on air. We're never going on cones. We're never going on a coach. They're always against a partner who is simulating or mimicking a receiver. Okay, cool. Got it. So that just major change is that. So always, always human interaction. And so I guess, you know, it's interesting to think about. So you've spent years doing, I guess you could say more non-specific training for athletes where it was more general. And looking back, so in retrospect to just your first year, well, I will say too, what was the results of your year? I mean, you know, points, points allowed, like those types of things. Like, did you feel like, did you get any tangible metrics to say, yes, this is like, Helping like and and to help kind of push that forward and could you explain a little bit about you know how that panned itself out? Yeah, uh, well, you kind of started in one drill and I'll kind of touch upon the general and that's kind of like I said when we first spoke many years ago, I was definitely like the the general agility, which you know we talked way back when was like in order for for it to be really agility, they have to be reacting to some sort of mm-hmm. stimulus, right? Yeah. And that kind of transpired into well, for in order to really improve our athletes' agility or movement skills it has to be specific. It has to be contextually specific. And so some of these general agility drills, because they are reacting to human beings, what I kind of found was that 
it's fun. It can help with you know general movement skill, maybe creativity, maybe some adaptability. Um, but in order to really, I think, push the envelope and help our athletes, it has to be the, the environment has to be specific. So if I'm let's just say a defensive back, for example, some of the geo drills that I used to show or do isn't going to help a defensive back because of the environment, the information that they're interacting with is not specific. It can help. Again, it's fun. It may be to help with some certain elements of movement, but I think the large meat and potatoes of movement has to be done in contextually specific environments. And that's kind of, again, where my push and my transition to wanting to get more involved with the sport and the sport coach, I got to because it's like, I think some of these environments that I was in with my my private sector, where I had 10 athletes from maybe seven different sports, it didn't allow me to really get into the nitty gritty from each sport and, and design environments and activities that were specific to each sport. And that's kind of where my football group kind of took off, where I spent more time with them getting on the field and, and doing more kind of a side projects with those guys where it was I was able to get into that specific environments, which need to involve techniques and tactics of those uh, sporting contacts as well. As far as like the results, yeah, that's a hard thing to, you know, obviously measure. You know, we had a young team. We led the conference yeah. interceptions. So I think that's obviously a, a, a mm-hmm. decent starting point for a defensive back. We lead the conference interceptions. Yeah, I guess the biggest thing would be I was actually just doing some postseason review last week and um, going through fall camp. And again, this is obviously just coaching lens that I was using. And, and I was looking at um, during fall camp where our guys' movement skills were at. Um, what are some of their techniques that they're using during fall camp? And then obviously the last week of the year, their playoff game and our practice leading up to that. I was just kind of using that as a lens to see, did we see growth? Um, sometimes it can be a little bit difficult during the year when you see guys every single day. You know, it's like seeing a child. If you see them every single day, you don't really see them growing. But if you see a kid yeah. one day, then six months later, you see that. So that's why I was kind of looking back at fall camp to see if there was that kind of growth. And there, there was. So obviously that's a uh, me obviously thinking or maybe a bias in that sense. So I thought I saw some growth with our guys. and. Um, we saw some freshmen and, and uh, retro guys that really uh, stepped up and, and made big steps throughout the, the course of the year and, and played a very valuable role at the end of the year that weren't in those positions early in the year. So guilty, it's a biased opinion, but I thought we saw growth in, in our guys' movement skills and how they were being sensitive and picking up the information that receivers were giving off or offenses were giving off or quarterbacks were giving off. So I, I feel like there was growth. And that's kind of the hard thing about taking this approach is that, again, as strength coaches, we want to f- always feel like there's a a set progression, right? You know, that's what we're all designed. There's a progression to it. And that everyone follows the same progression. You go from A to B, B to C. That's one thing you follow, like ecological dynamics, is that there's different timescales in which guys adapt and how they uh, adjust to various skills. And so it's not like you know, after one week of doing these drills, everyone's going to be taking the next step. And that, so there's different time scales. And so I got to see and, and different the time rates and the scale, uh, scales that guys were adapting, adjusting, and, and improving their movement skills throughout the year. And so that is obviously difficult as a coach, but it's also part, part of the fun where you have to continually adapt and adjust your your individual programs, your, your individual periods, and what you're uh, giving each uh, athlete at, uh, for their for their skill training and their movement training in order to try to hopefully best fit each athlete to, to progress them throughout the season. Yeah. So going back just quickly to all the general stuff that you did, I mean, at what point do you feel like, cause I imagine, you know, for younger athletes, like let's just say nine, 10, 11, like uh, maybe even younger than that. Like it seems to me that any, I mean, even, you know, I do soccer practice. We play a lot of general fun games freeze tag before we play because honestly some of those kids aren't even good enough at soccer to get the most out of playing soccer they need to play other games that are simpler to maximize their experience 
I'm sure there's kind of a scale from that five-year-old to up to a 20-year-old in terms of how long and beneficial those general games until it starts to need, at some point, it needs to start becoming more specific to have its ultimate impact. And so, looking back in, let's just say, maybe the high school, let's just maybe start there, like middle school or high school realm, you can maybe tackle both. And I'm working with these athletes. Do you feel like, what do you feel like is the best thing I can give them if I'm not actually working with them in the sport for speed development? Do you feel like there's much, if anything, at that point, based off of your, your working with all ages and then college now? At what point do you feel like it really has to start being specific to be maximally or really impactful? Um, just give me your take on that, that spectrum of things. Yeah, that's a great question, Joe, and a great point. And like I said, I, I own a sports performance facility, and for our youth, middle school, early high school, it was all general. Just my interest became more specific to football, and that's kind of obviously where, mm-hmm. why I transitioned the way that I transitioned. I, I think for young kids, it, the general aspect is super important to create general movement skills, to create general attunement to, to the way human beings move and, and opponents move and how to manipulate space and manipulate time and things like that. So I think general you know, agility games, uh, various things like that are, are super impactful and very beneficial. And in our facility, we did that all the way up through high school. Now, when, when, when athletes start to become more specific in what they want, and whether it be a high school junior or a senior, then they're going to play one sport. Then I think obviously you have to transition, you know, slowly into more specific activities and environments for them to interact with in order to get the most bang for your buck. That that's as athletes become more specialized into their sport, then I think the training has to be more specialized. And if that's a junior in high school. That that's a junior in high school. Now again, I think there are small benefits, um, just like playing multiple sports. There are benefits in terms of avoiding burnout and getting mm-hmm. a little bit more robust movement skills and and exposing your athletes to different environments to keep things fresh and, and fun for your athletes. There's obviously benefit to that. Um, if we're trying to maximize performance, um, and again, we're, I'm working with college athletes that are playing a single sport, mm-hmm. that you know, much of what we're going to work on is going to be geared towards that sport. That's why they're playing the sport. That's why they're in college and things like that. And so uh, while I do believe there are some, like at this time of year, I'm encouraging a lot of our guys to go play pickup basketball, mm-hmm. to do some, again, live, fun, various game activities that, that will have a little bit of that. And again, I don't think playing pickup basketball is going to help any of my guys become better football players. I'm not going to say that. But it is a good way to offset some of the some of the wear and tear, some of the, the grind of always being focused and concentrated on football. I think there are benefits from that from a mental and psychological standpoint, much more than there is from like a physical standpoint. Like I'm not going to sit here and be like, well, my guy's playing pickup basketball. Now they're going to be better defensive backs. I, I don't think that's true at all, even though that is agility, even though that's another game. But I, I do think there are benefits mentally and psychologically from doing that type of thing. And so it just depends when your athletes become more specialized and focused into a singular sport, then you can maybe transition a little bit of that focus of your movement skill work uh, to be a little more specialized. But I'm with you, Joe. If I got a middle school uh, team or an elementary school team, it is going to be all general. It's going to be just fun games. I want engagement. I want fun. I want them to move in a variety of different things. I want them to engage. I want them to interact with live, living, breathing environments as much as possible, even though even if that's not specific. Yeah, it is interesting too watching some of that age group, middle school and high school, come in in like an open gym setting. For those who do uh, in the gym that I'll, I'll train athletes out of, I don't train these athletes, but I'll I'll observe and. It's it's just it's kind of funny. It's like um, you know, Austin Yoakum has said, you know, what do you praise? Do you praise the wonder at Max, or or do you praise like the good decision making? You know, even if it's just like if it's I'm a private sector gym and I'm maybe I have games 
And I think it is becoming more popular for private sector gyms to ha- offer games alongside the speed and the, the strength type development. But I'll see athletes who come in, it's like they just want to hit a one or max because in some ways, like that's the easy, that in comparison to sport, to me, that's the easy thing to get just generally psyched up and improve at a movement that maybe you've only been doing for you know two or three years and it's a little bit easier compared to a sport that maybe you've been playing for five or six or derivatives of it for seven or eight or nine. And it's, I think maybe it's human nature to find those things that are easy to level up at, but. Uh, yeah. And it's easy to, to, to track. It never changes. Like here's the sport of football. Every year is going to adapt. Offense to adapt. The point that you're playing changes week to week. It's hard because you don't get like that concrete, like, well, this week I played like at, at a C level. The next week I played a C plus and I went to a B. You, know, you don't have that consistent tracking like you can in a weight room where 45 pounds is going to be 45 pounds no matter where you go. So if I improve my bench, you know, you can track that in a very specific, measurable way where a performance in sport is always changing and always adaptable. Like Again, your point from one week to another changes. My, next year, we're going to see offenses that offer things that are very different than what our, our guys saw this week. Mm-hmm. And you as an athlete are constantly changing. I think that's more fun to me uh, where you're, you're constantly week in, week out, having to adapt, having to create, uh, and, and having to grow your skill set. Because if you do get stuck, you're going to get passed by. And so it is harder to have very specific and, and, tr- and measurable uh, results because your opponent and who you're going against changes week to week. And it's a, and there's there's a, a million different factors from from officials to weather to lighting to you know the health of your teammates to the system that you play in where again I can prove my bench bench press 10 pounds because 45 pounds will always be 45 pounds and I can track that and I, I, to me like I said I that I just found that that's why I transitioned out of the strength conditioning. I found that kind of boring. Like it's not hard to I think add 10 pounds of uh, of, of of lift to somebody. That's not a really hard thing to do, but it is hard to continually engage and adapt and create new movement skills that continue to grow to the new challenges that you're going to face and encounter in sport. I find that a lot more fun personally. Yeah, it's it's definitely you know, the chaos of sport. It's almost, it's something that you could, you know, you can write down how it's different and chaotic. It's almost like a spirit of it too. I mean, you feel it when you're playing a game, like you can't control it the way that and I think it is so much easier to control a weight. Yeah, okay. Okay. And, and even for me, like I wasn't as, <laughs> it is funny going back and thinking about these things. I mentioned this, like I wasn't as good of a basketball player as I was a track athlete and track is probably more complex than lifting a barbell. There's you run and jump and jump over hurdles or high jump. There's, there's more complexity going on, but it's still way simpler than a basketball game you know with a basketball flying around and me trying to figure out mentally why my shot won't go in or does you know like it's just that's even just the base level of things so it's interesting to think about i think almost the mindset there there can be i shouldn't say there is but there can be a mindset i i think that can go into it and in some ways too i would say lifting weight versus sport in some ways i guess you could say you could make the argument well you know maybe that's an athlete's break from their sport you know they don't have to be all complex and, and things like that. Maybe I can ask you this question. I just, I did have seen this in my thought pro- and, and you could maybe tell me what you think about this is I think this, it's easy for strength coaches to love the kid who's the grinder, who, who's the going to come in and do the extra work in the weight room. In my experience, that athlete has not been a star athlete on the field. They, because they, they can control that extra grind. You know, they can do extra, maybe some even muscle hypertrophy, get a little bigger improve their endurance but at the end of the day you're i think your resources to adapt are finite 
And like you said, like, wouldn't I rather spend more time with the, pro- the complex decision-making process if possible? So, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. That grinder mentality, have you seen you know, that grinder type be successful in sport as well? Just your thoughts on that, that type of Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, there's clearly there's, uh, you know, people that have that mindset or uh, are that type and have found ways to be successful in sport. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's kind of funny. I kind of agree with a lot of what you said there, Joel. Those kids also tend to be, end up being the strength coaches as well. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of, yeah. it just recycles itself in a, in a never ending uh, cycle of the guys that get um, complimented and get rewarded in the weight room tend to then in the strength coaches, like you said, that that's kind of where they find their their niche to to be successful within a team sport. And the, those things, there's obviously plenty of examples of those guys that busted their ass in the weight room and then found ways to be successful mm-hmm. in a sport at high levels. That uh, you know, there's obviously I think some examples of that. But it, like you said, it tends to be those athletes tend not to be like the the best players. If I'm being, if we're being frank and honest, and that's what I've seen in my career, that those athletes don't tend to be the best athletes on, within the actual sport. But they tend to be the best weightlifters, and so they like to do it because they're having success and they're getting complimented. And it goes back to like you talked about, Joe. Like, what, what do we, what are we trying to support in athletes? And for me, like, if I want an athlete and have a young daughter, like, I'm going to support her being creative and being adaptable and taking risk. Like, that's what I want to compliment. That's why I want to push and support. Not necessarily like, are you getting stronger in a certain movement or a lift or you know that kind of. So, like you said, what are we? Uh, supporting what are we complimenting what are we giving feedback for what are we rewarding uh, you know for me i think it is it, it is athletes taking risk and adapting within movement i think that's what we should be rewarding i, I mean i can remember this man i, I it's crazy i, I still went in the strength conditioning because my freshman year of football college football i was a first i was an all-american uh, as a freshman and i remember the first like off-season lift i i couldn't do like five pull-ups and our, our strength coach basically called me a pussy. And I'm like, I'm the best player on the team. And you're like ripping me in front of everybody. Call me a pussy. Like that shows how little me being able to do pull-ups affects my performance on the field. Um, so it, that, despite that, I guess I still went to strength conditioning, but those type of things like just always stood out to me. Like, I'm never going to be that guy that like, oh, you can't do some pull-ups. So you're going to be a rotten football player. That makes sense. Or rotten, whatever athlete you're going to be. So I, I remember that distinctly. And, and uh but like you said, and then whoever are throughout my college football playing career, some of those grinders who were the strongest pound for pound in the weight room or, or, you know, our strength coach's favorite, those guys were like backups or special teams players are not really, in, you know, performing at a high level on our team. And, and that just, and that obviously I think that also applies to how I approach strength conditioning, where I was very different in, in, in my approach. And that's kind of obviously what I was known for as a strength coach, but I wasn't uh, the guy that was all about the the you know five three one or uh, whatever it may be the strength conditioning principles I was all about pushing movement and and skill and things like that and so I mean, it kind of kind of goes full circle I guess you could say in that yeah I do think what you said bears mentioning too again in the sense of uh, it's not like there are players who are the grinders who spend extra time or or really rely on the weight room who don't have success but they tend to play with that same mentality if they're going to win they're going to overpower their opponent physically they're not going to skill is not the thing they hang their hat on maybe that's what i like the quick skill and decision making is not how they reward themselves as much and thinking about a little bit more it's like i I have seen some players who are decent who did really enjoy the weight room but they played like that like like the weight room a little bit more if that makes sense like that was more the spirit like just physically overpowering like like maybe yelling or grunting or whatever and they weren't they weren't the best I guess maybe, you know, you could say too, I, I've heard this in basketball, like there's maybe that like 
that power forward who's just like built like a big brick and their job is just to like maybe cause fouls and chaos and be a physical force. Well, maybe they do need to, you know, lift. Maybe, maybe they couldn't have even got to that point without that. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I'm curious. I mean, if I guess it just depends a little bit on the sport and what you do too. You know, if, if, if your sport, I know for me personally, I know if I could have gone back in time for me to be the best basketball player. I don't know, like I was confident because I was athletic, but for me to get to, I, my level was capped. Like I wasn't going to play in college. If I would have played in college, I would have been division three and sat on the bench, you know, like if that, you know, for what program would have taken me. So I would have tapped out there, but it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, like in development, you know, do you let people who, all I got's this coach, like, you know, or like you'd have to almost go back. Like for me, you'd have to go back in time and rewind time to like my younger, younger years. And I would have to have different exposures to sport and what I was rewarded for. Like I was rewarded for being able to jump high from my peers early in life. So guess what I ended up doing a lot, you know, (laughs) like that's kind of how it worked out more. And I didn't, I don't know, like, it's just interesting to think about that with different, different levels of play and things like that. Those are all good thoughts. Um, I I go back to like, again, if we're in an NCAA, you know, realm, we have a limited amount of time we can spend with our athletes. And so like I said, if I'm going to spend time with my athletes, in or out of season, I want to be pushing it towards improving their sport. I go back to like, if a guy is a grinder in a weight room, you know what he's going to be doing in his free time on a Saturday afternoon or Sunday? He's probably going to go to the gym and, and do his weightlifting. So like, they're going to find ways to do what they're good at or what their strengths are. I mean, so I'm not super, I wouldn't be super concerned. Like, well, if the guy needs to, you know, his benefit and where his strength lies is is being a grinder in the weight room because that kind of applies to how he's going to play in the game well he's going to find he's going to find time to, to do the weight room stuff so whether he lifts with us or he doesn't go with us we've all seen athletes like that so i wouldn't be concerned about potentially you know not playing to a, a, one of my athletes strengths and that strength is the weight room or they like the grind in the weight room i wouldn't be super concerned about missing out on that because i know they're going to probably find uh, time for that in, in, in a different point in time going to the rec center or wherever it may be and so I don't know. I, I just, I, I think, again, that's awesome. If guys love the weight room and they, they find um, success there, that, that, that like those are all great things. We've seen a lot of strength courses derived from that. We see a lot of, uh, obviously there's benefits in, in physical exercise. So, but if I'm looking to push the needle and, and, and change the scoreboard and the results for my, my team, I'm going to be spending my time uh, as, as many specific activities or environments as possible. That's just kind of how I would approach it. Okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. So just closing thoughts, you know, it's yeah. interesting to think about, I mean, everything is always going to evolve. It's interesting to think, oh, well, how it is now is how it's always going to be. You know, there's always going to be you know, the strength coach and the sport coach, and there's always going to be, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday lifts for 60 minutes or, you know, or however many, you know, like it's, it is interesting to think about that evolution. But with that in mind, I, I'm a lot of people listening, you know, still in the world where let's say I'm, you know, I'm training speed with a group of high school football players or something like that. You know, it's, it's our speed day or, you know, speed development. And I want to give them their best shot at sorts of transfer. It's interesting to think about what moves the needle, you know, I mean, obviously I want to get them faster, you know, more reactive. I mean, just, just anything, maybe anything goes answer for people working with these sports, like learning the sport itself. You know, I mean, obviously tell you the actual coach or, or sign up to be the coach, <laughs> go sign up to be the coach. Just things that you think move the needle the most. Like if you were to say, even if it's, you know, obviously, you know, we've talked about how much impact, but I can do any sort of speed, you know, I'm not bound by the NCAA rules or whatever, you know, can use implements or not. Just what your take is on things that move the needle the absolute most in a 
program that is not the sport itself, like speed, speed okay. training, speed and performance. Yeah, if you're looking at speed, like like I said before, I I, I felt like a representative task design type thing. So d- does does the activity that you're doing look, feel, act, behave like the sport that they're training for? So for example, uh, football. I think in order to push the needle with speed, then you put your athletes in in activities or environments or tasks that they might find themselves on a Friday night or a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday night, right? And so that might involve with an athlete carrying a ball, being chased at a certain angle by somebody trying to reach the end zone, right? It's as simple as that. It's not not, not earth shattering. Like just just design an environment um, or activity that looks, acts, and feels and behaves like like football. That's that's all there's to it. So like you know, a couple of activities we might do, like running backs getting a single file line. We're going to take a handoff. We're going to have two linebackers or safeties outside the hashes and you're going to try to split the hashes and try to score let's say 40 yards we're working on max velocity that's what you're after joel and then our linebackers you know you're going to take your initial drops and then say it's a draw you just you have to pursue that running back and so we're opening up space if you want to train max velocity then open up space open up time to allow your athletes to interact with that space and time and there's no like you have to run directly straight you can curve away from obviously if one defender's closing more so than the other defender you have to see the angles of the defenders the end the defenders are trying to now match the angle to obviously cut off the the running back or the offensive player before they reach the end zone so just trying to design or create environments that are kind of like football and if you're after max speed then you're going to open up that space right pretty simple like one activity we'll do with receivers and d-backs and a receiver catches an under route and uh, uh, we put a defensive back in a trail position. They have to catch that ball with a D-back trailing them, say at the 40-yard line. So they're catching it under, and they're running the sideline. If you get cut off, if the defensive back cuts you off, then you can put on the brakes and cut back against the grain and go underneath the defender and go cut back against them and try to score that way. And so it just involves um, designing activities that simulate the sport, that are like the look, act, feel, and behave like the sport. And we've done tests like this. I mean, one argument that I've gotten from a strength coach, well, well, they're never hitting their their max capacity. They were doing a fly 10, right? So they're not running at full capacity because they're carrying a ball, because they're getting chased, because they have the helmet on. So they're never reaching the the full speed that they would during a a pure fly 10. And I've tested this, and that's not true. Like Some of our guys run faster. Some guys run faster when they're getting chased or they're chasing people. Mm -hmm. Some people run faster with an implement. And guess what? During sport, you're a lot faster carrying an implement. So you running without an implement does not make you faster carrying an implement. So might as well train speed with that implement. It only makes sense, right? And so I've had that argument. Well, the ground reaction forces, the ground contact times, the speed, the flight time, the actual max velocity they're hitting is not the same if you're doing on-track spikes on a track with a 30-meter buildup before that flight time is not the same. And I've, I've tested it and I've trained this, and it it, it – in 99% of the time, it's the same thing. Like you're, so if you're going to be all geared up because on a track you run a 1.00 fly 10, and on a football field carrying a ball they run 1.005, like that's the same thing. But we're actually getting the benefits of doing things in a contextual, contextual environment, which allows much greater transfer. So trying to do things like that. Are there implements involved? Use those implements. Are there different angles involved? Use those angles. And so we, I've, we've all seen it. The track guy that runs a 10-5 in track goes up for football and they're not pulling away from anybody because they tighten up when they're getting chased. So they, they don't run well with an implement. So hopefully your training, if you're going to train speed, involves those characteristics because that's what's going to happen during the game. You know, so they're they're not looking around for a defender. They're, they're afraid of you. So all those things are present during sport. I think they should be in some ways present during your your speed or agility training as well. Cool. 
Uh, And and again, Joe, what I said there, I don't think it's earth shattering, is it? I don't think it's like, instead of just getting out the the, the timer to run fly tens, like have somebody chase somebody while carrying a ball at a different angle with with a goal, with an end mindset. Again, in football, it's I'm trying to score a touchdown. So use the end zone and have an opportunity when if a defensive back overruns it, they can put on their brakes and go score. And like, you've seen this in college football. It's crazy to me, like, they have obviously the GPS monitoring on a lot of the high level athletes or college football teams. And if, you know, if an athlete hits 20 miles per hour, you know, the strength coach will bring up, you know, blow a horn and all do like 10 pushups and get jacked mm-hmm. up because the guy hit 20 miles per hour. But to me, to make some, like, if I'm a defensive guy and I hit 20 miles per hour, but I overran the ball carrier, what mm-hmm. fucking good is that? So you're just celebrating the wrong thing. Speed in sport is about contextual speed mm-hmm. or using that speed for an, an objective, a goal. If your speed is just to hit the top speed, then you're, you're probably either getting beat over the top and you're chasing somebody. So you're bad defense or you're, you're just celebrating a guy running across the field for no fucking reason, burning their energy or overrunning the ball carrier just to get 20 miles per hour. So the strength ca- uh, coach now gets to celebrate a guy hitting 20 miles per hour in practice. So you have to have a context behind the speed that athletes are trying to hit and trying to attain rather than just, we have these standards of speed, 20 miles per hour. We're going to celebrate 20 miles per hour. I can only see it like in a practice one time, uh, you know, uh, a defensive back overrunning a play across the field and letting a cutback happen and and an offensive guy score, but he hit 20 miles per hour. So the strength coach is celebrating Mm -hmm. while the defense corner is like, what are we celebrating for? We just have a touchdown. I can just see that happening in a college practice because we're so geared on, hitting a certain speed without the context being involved. And so I don't think it's really hard to include some sort of context with your speed work. Yeah. I don't remember um, Kirwan and Flat and Eric Corum were talking about that back oh, three years ago when they were on just uh, how the highest speeds, their highest team speed ratings were a lot of games where their team got their ass kicked and they were chasing people. <laughs> chasing guys down the field, right? And so Chasing people um, down the field. Yeah, it's... I think there are ways, like all those skills, whether it be speed, agility, and like I said, strength. We we can train all those things in much more contextual things. And I think that allows for greater transfer, greater efficiency, better use of our athletes' time. So I, I think that all those things are, are are feasible if you are creative and you just you have to have, but you have to have a, a pretty good understanding and base knowledge of the sport that you're working with, and you have to know the tactics and the techniques and the schemes of your team. I think can go a long ways and doing those things. So just as you can train speed on a field with contextual information or implements being involved, or you can break down the game and just try to have little snippets or pieces of the game involved with your speed work, you can do the same thing in your strength work. And that's where I think the next step would be. If a strength conditioning staff would just be like, we're going to get out of the weight room 50% of the time and do our strength work in contextual things where I'm, what, what is strength like in football, offensive line? I am moving a physical being that is adapting and changing shape. Do you think a bench press is really helping with that? That you is going to help you run block a 285-pound defensive lineman that is trying to adjust his movement. He's trying to change his pad level. He's trying to change his body shape. Do you think a bench press is really having a lot of transfer to that, even if you're adding 20 pounds to it? So you can train strength in specific activities and environments. I think it just involves getting out of the weight room and, and, and studying the sport more. Mm-hmm. I think the strength coach is study the sport more instead of studying the Russian textbooks and five, three, one, or conjugate med, whatever. Maybe I think they spend more time studying the sport. They could be like, all right, we can train strength in a sporting activity environment via the manipulation of strengths, via using opponents, via using some more creative modalities of resistance than they would get out of a weight room. That's just my opinion. And I think if, again, if I was in a, 
a school that would have, you know, didn't have the recruiting budget or didn't have the resources of some of my conference opponents, that would be my first step is to get out of the weight room because, it, again, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, if you're just doing whatever else is doing, which is you're going to lift four days a week and you're doing approximately the same thing, you're just staying on par with them. You're not giving yourself any sort of, 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 of a competitive advantage or any sort of way for your athletes to potentially be better than your opponent. So I think getting out of the weight room and trying to find ways to contextualize your speed, your agility, your strength work, I think is a next step for a lot of programs to take that, uh, find a way to, to overcome some of those disadvantages that that program may have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's again, it, I think that, it's just more about things becoming more integrated and efficient over time. It's just like when there's so many different things going on, you know that at some point it's going to get a little bit inefficient or, you know, potentially a lot. So, yeah, I've, I've always, even just for me, just getting out of the weight room, just myself and going and sprinting on the track was always just <laughs> amazing. Just, you know, being outside, being in some chaos, yep. you know, you think too, like some of that type of stuff helps remind us when we were kids and we're just playing, you know, just having fun, playing games, being in chaos, so. Good stuff, Michael. You know, I think we got through all our questions here. You know, it's really cool to see your transition into sport coaching. And we've had a few of these. Uh, I know Rachel Balkovic. Um, well, she's not even a hitting coach. She's like in manager land now. She was strength yeah, coach, yeah. hitting coach to manager. So, um, yeah, it's just cool to see your evolution. And it'll be interesting to keep up with you as you kind of, as you keep going. And, you know, maybe we'll see that at some day, that isometrics, <laughs> isometric sled medicine ball based system for the D-backs. So keep me updated on that. But thanks for coming on the show today, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, Joel. That finishes another episode of the show. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you all next week.